can be seated. In our text today, which is John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, John the evangelist, the gospel writer, declares his answer to the question, why? Why did he write this gospel? Why did he present Jesus in this particular way, with these stories, with this structure? What was his aim and what was his purpose in so doing? In John 30, verse 31, John makes it clear that he writes to encourage faith in Jesus. Verse 30 is actually a bit astonishing where John suggests Mount Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. There's a lot more he's saying that I could have told you. He probably knows that some of his readers will be acquainted with the synoptic gospel tradition. Many of the stories there that John didn't touch or address or bring into his book. So he's alluding to other material but saying instead in verse 31 he says you know these are written. That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing you may have life in his name. We've quoted this text before in our series on the Gospel of John. But today we'll take a plunge into it. The reason for this book, the reason that we have the Gospel according to John. John says, is to deepen faith and to bring life. So we're going to look at both of those aspects of this passage in our time together this morning. First... Belief or faith in Jesus? Let's deal with the technicality first. The manuscript evidence here has two forms of the verb for believe in the these are written so that you may believe. One is the present subjunctive tense. The other is the aorist tense of the subjunctive form. And um, there's a division in the scholarship about this. We can't be sure which it is. And if it's the aorist tense interpreted strictly, the aorist can include the present but if it's interpreted strictly, it seems to imply that John is pointing to come to believe for the first time, which would then suggest that his audience, primary audience, are non-Christians, that John wants to encounter the story of Jesus and come to faith. If it's the present tense, it seems to be more focused on the that you may continue to believe idea, this ongoing continuous reality in the present, in which case John is writing to the church and seeking to encourage uh, a, deep, a deepening of faith and belief there. The, the difference in the verb form is just one sigma in the Greek, just an S. So it's a small difference. But it could lead in these two directions. I think it's probably too much to press it too, too hard here. And I would say too, from the context of the Gospel of John, that we would be wrong to think that John wasn't writing in some way to Christians to deepen their understanding of Jesus. He's writing to the community of faith. The Upper Room Discourse, which is John's unique contribution to the gospel traditions, is, is so deeply about the, the New Covenant community and deepening our faith. So that has to be there. And we've certainly explored how John is such deep waters that it allows those who are mature in Christ to continue to swim and be overwhelmed with the complexity and depth and the reality of who God is and his relationship, the relationship between the Father and the Son. At the same time, John is, of course, very appropriate for seekers and inquirers and doubters who are exploring the claims of Jesus. It presents a, a tremendously clear picture of the identity of Jesus and the heart of what God has come to bring us in his son. I began this series last September telling you about my father who was a TWA pilot and would commute from Colorado Springs to St. Louis and ride in the back of the plane. And he'd always carry around pocket-sized Gospel of John's to share with people as he was engaging them in conversation about who Jesus is. 
John has often been used as the book for seekers to turn to to understand Jesus. So I tend to think that in this case is this new faith that John is saying that you may believe for the first time or that you may continue to believe that John's not so much concerned about the starting place of all who pick up his gospel whether they're Christians yet or not but he wants to encourage believing in Jesus a belief that yes does begin at some specific point in time in our lives but a belief that is to be renewed day by day as we continue to walk with him in our lives and so John's heart would be to see this belief begin and or grow in all of his readers, whether they're lifelong followers or just active seekers or even hardened doubters. What is this faith in or about? That you might believe, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Christian faith, biblical faith, is faith that has as its object Jesus, the Son of God. John's point throughout his gospel has been to say, look, in dealing with Jesus, we are dealing with God. To believe that Jesus is merely a good teacher or the highest moral example, and these are common and somewhat fashionable reflections on Jesus in our world today is to miss the intent and the heart of this gospel and to miss the claims of Christianity, not just by a matter of degree, as if the arrow that we shot hit the target but just missed the bullseye, but rather that the arrow hit a completely different target uh, altogether. There is a gigantic gulf between Jesus as creature however exalted he may be, and Jesus as creator, as sharing the unique divine identity. All of Christianity hangs on this confession, this faith. Herman Bavink, the Dutch Reformed theologian who died in 1921, said it like this, quote, It is also clear that the Christian religion, that is, the true fellowship between God and humans can be maintained in no other way than by the confession of the deity of Christ. For if Christ is not truly God, he is only a human being. And however highly he may be placed, he can neither in his person nor in his work be the content and object of the Christian faith. End quote. Jesus did not come merely to show us the way of salvation, but to be the way of salvation. This makes him unique among founders of religion. And John writes, he says, to encourage faith in Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, in his unique divine identity. It's clear that this is what John has been driving to. He opens the, the, the door to his gospel in the prologue, letting us as readers into this reality of the unique identity of Jesus, the word made flesh. He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then as he opens the narrative portion of the gospel in verse 19 of chapter 1, all the way up to where we are today, he invites us to come and see Jesus. And we are story after story and sign after sign brought 
into the presence of this one whose unique identity is as the Messiah, the King of Israel, also therefore the King of the world, the Son of Man, the Son of God, ultimately. And what becomes clear throughout this narrative is that in dealing with Jesus, we're dealing with God. Remember, before Abraham was, I am, Jesus says in chapter 8, verse 58. Or I and the Father are one in chapter 10, verse 30. Or whoever has seen, the fa- seen me has seen the Father in chapter 14, verse 9. Jesus is unique. He shares in the identity of his Father as divine. And this becomes more and more apparent in chapters 1 through 12, the book of the signs with these seven signs. Jesus turns water into wine. He heals the son of a nobleman. He heals the invalid. He feeds the 5,000. He walks on water. He heals the blind man. And then climactically, he raises in chapter 11, he raises Lazarus from the dead. And then in the book of glory, chapters 13 to 21, there is this final sign. The hour for which he came, the cross, his death, and the subsequent resurrection three days later, which manifests his glory. All of this, this whole narrative, leads us to the confession of Thomas, as we saw last week. My Lord and my God. He says this after he's seen the wounds in his hands and the hole in his side, and he knows that This man standing before him was dead before, but is now alive again. He's been resurrected from the dead. And that leads Thomas to this confession that clearly John wants all of his readers to make with Thomas. My Lord and my God. It's an astounding confession, but it's the heart of the confession of Christian faith. So John will then pull out of the narrative here in verses 30 and 31 to say, this is why I'm writing the book. This is why I've chosen these stories in this way is to lead you to that confession that Thomas just made. Blessed are those who have not seen and believed. All those who are making this confession of faith based on the eyewitness testimony of John and the other apostles. Which we have for us in the scriptures. It's a confession about Jesus. That he shares in the divine identity. This faith that John seeks to writes to encourage is not merely cognitive assent to certain truths about the identity of Jesus once we confess that he is Lord and God it immediately leads us biblical faith in its robust sense leads us to an active sense of trust yielding our lives to the Lord to God putting our hopes and dreams and ambitions and aims all in his hands In Colorado, there is the Royal Gorge. It's a thousand foot uh, vertical wall down to a river canyon. And over the gorge runs the highest suspension bridge in North America. And it's one thing to look at the bridge and say, wow, that's an amazing feat. Uh, I, I, I wonder if it holds you. And it's another thing to actually walk across the bridge or drive. You can drive across that bridge as well and to put your whole life in its hands. When John says he writes to encourage faith, it yes is a faith in in an ascent to the identity of Jesus. But the moment we say he's Lord and God, and Thomas says, my Lord and my God, as if to say, I'm yielding my life to you. I'm stepping out on the bridge. I'm putting everything that I have in your hands. And it's not only the sense of trust, but it's also then a following, a yielding of our will, of control of our lives over to the Lord and the King, the true God to Jesus and walking after him 
following in his footsteps, doing what he commands, not what we wish or what we want. How is this faith, this robust biblical faith, how is it produced and sustained? How is it born? How is it continued? And it is no doubt by individual testimony. We think back to John 4 and the woman who encountered Jesus at the well, running back to the town and telling everybody about this man that she had met. It's also no doubt by the power of the testimony of the community. In fact, the Gospel of John encourages us to think about it in this way. Jesus says, they'll know you're my disciples as you love one another. Or he says he wants us to be one, to walk in unity together as the body of Christ, so that the world might know that the Father has sent me. The communal witness matters. The individual witness matters. But what John is saying in verses 30 and 31 is that the biblical, the scriptural witness matters deeply. That it's this way. And of course, it is this biblical witness to Jesus's unique identity that is the ground and the basis and the foundation for all individual and communal witness to Jesus that has existed from that time. This is the foundational witness. The church is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, this biblical witness. I was listening earlier this week to the testimony of Tom Gerendis, a man that many of you had the privilege of knowing. His wife, Utah, is still a part of our community. She's not doing so well, needs our prayers right now. Her health seems to be failing. And I was out visiting her with some others this week to pray for her and they told me about the time that both Tom and Utah in different uh, moments that my predecessor Gordon Hugerberger had invited them up to, to share their testimony in the middle of one of his sermons. And so I went back and found the audio and we listened to it as a family this week. And we were just so blessed and, and encouraged by the story of Tom's faith. He, he was born, as many of you will know, as a Jew in Hungary during the Nazi occupation. He developed a real hatred, of course, for the Nazis and what, the, what they were doing to to his family, they, they split his family apart. And at one point he was hidden by a Catholic couple and protected from the Nazis taking him away. And then a woman named Mary, who was also Jewish but had come to know Jesus, took him and his mother into her home. And she began to teach his mother the scriptures and Tom wanted nothing to do with it as he recounts this story. But he went down to the basement one day just to seek some cover because there was gunfire all around and began to listen to what Mary had to say. And she was teaching the scriptures, this witness to Jesus. And he began to reflect on the things that she was saying were true about Jesus. And one night he says he was going to bed to the sound of gunfire and he prayed this prayer, Dear Lord, if, I, if you have sent this Jesus to be our savior, then please make it clear to me. And he fell asleep and then he woke up at five o'clock the next morning and he just knew. He said he stretched out his hands and said, it's got to be true. It just has to be. And he surrendered his life to Jesus. And he says one of the, one of the pieces of evidence that his life had changed was he looked out the window and saw a young German Nazi soldier and felt no hatred in his heart toward the man. He said the day before I would have been willing to murder him if I could. But things had changed. And what I loved about his story is this woman, Mary, this faithful woman who hid Tom and his mother in their house, used the scriptures to lead Tom to Jesus. John says, I wrote this book 
that you might have faith. If you're a seeker to open this book and to read it, to learn of Jesus and to come to know him and believe, to say my Lord and my God. If you already know him and you're walking with him in life to open this book and to come to deeper understanding and faith, to believe, to go on believing and to have your confession, my Lord and my God, strengthened, renewed in your life. This is the power of the scriptures. John writes that we might have faith. But then secondly, and more briefly, he says that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and then, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. Life. This is what God came to bring us, his life. And this has been the message of the Gospel of John. From the beginning, Jesus came to bring life. That's why his first sign is turning water into wine at a wedding to celebrate the goodness of life. Jesus came to bring us into the true feast, the true celebration, where the richness of life can be known. And life can only be known in one place when we are connected to the God of life. When we know and are connected to Jesus, we find that we can have genuine and true life. He is the author of life, the originator of life. He is the one through whom all things were made. And for whom we were made. And when we know him, we come to life. It's really important to say this. And as we come near the end of this series, it's important to note that that John's gospel is all about offering life. And God is all about offering life. There is a no. In the Christian life, of course. When we say yes to Jesus as our Lord and our God, it means that we will say no to those things that are diminishing life or that are against Jesus. And there are many of those things in our culture. And so the church rightly says no. Christian parents rightly say no to our children again and again because we love them. God says no and we are called to say no as well. But there is a deeper yes. And I, I worry sometimes that the reputation of the church, especially among teenagers and children, is that we are just about the no. When we so desperately need them to see that God is most deeply a God of yes, and that in Jesus, that is God's big yes to the world and to his creation and to you and to me, that he's come to give life, genuine, whole and deep life, life that can only be found in him. And this life is so much better than what the world has to offer. It's not just a, a kind of extreme version of the 21st century of the American dream. But it's a radically new life. So radical and so new that Jesus says you have to be born again to know this life. Or he talks in terms of new creation. It's new. Empowered by the spirit that he breathed out on his disciples as we saw a couple of weeks ago. It's a brand new kind of life. Qualitatively different life. It includes the peace and security that Jesus brings, having won the victory over sin, evil, and death, having won for us true forgiveness of our sins to wipe out our shame and our guilt. But it also includes an invitation into the way of the kingdom, this cross-shaped way of life, the way of love, of sacrificial service to others around us that Jesus calls us into. And he calls us into the fullness of this life. John says, this is why I wrote all that I've written that you might believe 
in Jesus. And so be connected to him. And by being connected to him, by believing, you might have life in his name. This is what the Christian message is to the world. Come to live. Come to be alive. I was blessed to hear the testimony of a woman in our congregation recently. I've been enjoying getting to meet many of you. And I, I look forward to hope meeting most of you at some point. And, and I love to hear your stories. And it's a privilege to hear the stories of how you've come to know Jesus. And she was reflecting on this moment in her early 30s when she looked around and realized that she had everything that she wanted. She had the family that she wanted, the marriage that she wanted, the career that she wanted, the house that she wanted. But something was deeply missing. It wasn't complete. There was a restlessness. And that's a great picture of life outside of God outside of Jesus we can have everything that the world has to offer and still find ourselves empty and hollow because we're missing the God of life it's elusive life is outside of union with God in Christ she had been around Christianity before but didn't think that that had the answers and so she'd begun to pursue the answers and other kinds of spirituality and then an acquaintance of hers somebody who worked for her told her quite boldly look what you really need is Jesus and this acquaintance said uh, would you be willing to go meet with my pastor and so she said she would and she drove 30 minutes or so to meet with this pastor and the pastor again in a way similar to the story uh, that I just told of, of Tom. The pastor took out the Bible and began to flip through the Bible and point to passage after passage about the good news of who God is as the creator and the redeemer of all things. And she found herself looking at the Bible being flipped through and having these true things to say and so deeply wanting that. And so she came to faith in Jesus in that meeting. And as she drove home, she described just layer after layer of things being peeled away and suddenly being able to see for the first time the darkness had lifted in her soul and there was a new life, real life, deep within her. The scriptures again being used powerfully to bring people to faith, to deepen our faith, that we might have life. This is the message of the Christian gospel to the world this is the message of this book to the world the scriptures to the world it is that there is one place to have life and yes it's a particular claim it's a universal claim Christianity is not some kind of tribal religion proclaiming a tribal deity it is a story that we tell that encompasses the whole of the world from creation to the renewal of all things in the new creation it's a story that claims to include you and me in every sense and in a culture that prizes tolerance, in a, a culture in which there are all kinds of different truth claims, this claim of the, the Christian faith, this claim of the Gospel of John to know where you can find real life, it's a claim that kind of is a little bit, has a stench to it in our world. And it's often the case that as Christians we tend to maybe want to soften it or shy away from it in a way. But to do so would be to radically reinterpret, to change completely the faith that we've been given Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He says that in John 14, 6, in this gospel. It's the scandal of particularity. 
Stephen Neal spent much of his ministry in India in the mid-20th century, interfacing with other religions. And he wrote a book in 1960 that he then published and updated in 1983 called Christian Faith and Other Faiths. And this is what he said about that claim. Quote, Christians are bound to affirm that all need the gospel. For the human sickness, there is one specific remedy and this is it. There is no other. Therefore, the gospel must be proclaimed to the ends of the earth and to the end of time. The church cannot compromise on its missionary task without ceasing to be the church. If it fails to see and to accept this responsibility, it is changing the gospel into something other than itself. And that is true. Neil goes on to say, though, that this isn't exactly something that those around us look upon with, with kind of warm feelings in their heart about. He says, naturally, to the non-Christian hearer, this must sound like crazy megalomania and religious imperialism of the worst kind. But it is the message that we have to give. Not to be distorted, but to be proclaimed. And, and I want to say, and this is what John is saying at the end of his gospel, Look, I've written these things that you might believe that Jesus is this unique person that I've told you that he is all along, the Messiah, the Son of God, which carries the freight of union with the Father. And that by believing, you might have life in his name, genuine, full, true, abundant, cross-shaped life. This is our message to the world, and it's a message that the scriptures proclaim, and that we then proclaim as we stand upon their foundation into the world. And the repugnance of this message I, I want to propose to you as we draw to a close will be mitigated and minimized as we take up the way of life that we are brought into in Jesus. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we can't live the cross-shaped life on our own, but by the Spirit's power as we in the world become, how did God, what did he do when he took on human form? He became a servant. He took the lowest place. He took the towel and wrapped it around his waist and washed the disciples' feet. He didn't lord it over, but he came under and served. He went to the cross and even on the cross, his enemies, as they hurled insults at him, they received his words of forgiveness, his love, his statement that it is finished. He come to do this work that they might have life even those who were putting him on the cross and hurling insults at him while he was there the posture of God's life in the present world is the posture of the cross and of love and of humility and of service and it is to the church's shame and it is true that throughout our history we have taken this message and lorded it over those who disagree those who reject it and tried to control and dominate in ways that are unbecoming of the gospel of Jesus Christ my brothers and sisters, as we take this message into the world, not as lords over, not as the dominant ones, not as the controlling ones, but as the servants who are willing to die for our friends and even our enemies, as Jesus did. The message, the universality of this message in its particularity around this man, Jesus, will not, be, will not create a stench of death in the nostrils of others, but it will create a, a, an aroma, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, of life to the world as they see the divine life lived out by the Spirit's power in us, then they will come to know Jesus as the true King, the living Lord, the resurrected one. And with Thomas and with us, 
without any sense of pride or desert, cry out, my Lord and my God. Come to genuine life. A life that every single one of us is longing for and looking for and made for. John wrote this way to deepen our faith, to shape our life around the crucified king. That the effect of his writing in our lives would amplify the effect of his writing in this book. May it be so. Let's pray. We worship you, Lord Jesus. We adore you as king. And we cry out to you, my Lord and my God. We surrender to you. We trust you in this pandemic, in the challenges, the trials, the joys. We trust you, Lord Jesus. And we cry out to you to pour out your spirit upon us more and more that our collective witness as a community of believers at Park Street Church and with all the churches in the city and around the globe that proclaim you, Lord Jesus, as king, that our collective witness would amplify this message of your gospel written by your servant John. That many more would come to life and to believe that you, Jesus, are in fact the king, the Messiah, the son of God. We adore you. Hear this prayer, we pray, for your glory. And we pray it in your name. Amen.